America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the continent of Africa and the United Nations. Our guest is Vera Songwe, former United Nations Undersecretary General and former Executive Secretary of the Economic Commission for Africa. Dr. Songwe has held several crucial positions at the World Bank, including lead economist and an advising role to the managing director of numerous regions. She served as a country director for Senegal, Cape Verde, the Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, and Mauritania, and oversaw numerous projects across Africa and Southeast Asia. Dr. Songwe is the author of several articles on governance, fiscal policy, agriculture, and commodity price volatility and trade. Fifty-one nations signed the original United Nations Charter by the end of 1945 after years of discussions between allies regarding the need for an international body to promote peace and prosperity. The founding UN members, including only four nations of the African continent, sought to build a coalition that overcame the deficiencies of the League of Nations, which failed its mandate to promote peace when one member, the Soviet Union, invaded the territory of another, Finland, in 1939. The UN's initial mission to maintain global peace in the wake of World War II quickly expanded into a variety of efforts, and agencies focused on those efforts, such as health, migration, climate, and culture. From 1945 to 1980, dozens of African nations gained independence from colonial rule and joined the United Nations. African UN members advocated for continued decolonization and expansion of self-governance on the continent. In 1958, the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations established the Economic Commission for Africa, or ECA, as one of the organization's five regional commissions. Its mandate is to promote the economic and social development of relevant member states, foster regional integration and collaboration, and to promote African development. The ECA aims to build a more peaceful and secure continent and bolster Africa's economic infrastructure. As the first female ECA executive secretary, Dr. Songwe played a substantial role in creating the African Continental Free Trade Area, responded to COVID-19 needs, led an economic recovery, built partnerships with private sector groups, advocated for women in entrepreneurship, and fostered sustainable economic growth. The African continent represents 20% of the Earth's habitable surface, 1.39 billion people, or 17.7% of the global population, live in Africa. The region's 59 countries range from low- to high-income countries, and the continent accounts for 2.8% of global economic output. 22 countries are fragile or conflict-affected. The population of Africa could reach 2.49 billion by 2050, about 26% of the world's total, and 4.28 billion by 2100, about 39% of the world's total. The continent's young population and rich natural resources represent tremendous opportunity. But the continent's countries and regions face significant challenges associated with authoritarianism, terrorism and armed conflict, health security, water and food security, energy security, climate change and migration. We welcome Dr. Songwe to discuss the future of the United Nations, as well as security, economic growth and development on the African continent. Dr. Vera Songwe, welcome to Battlegrounds. Hey, it's really a privilege to have you here to try to do the impossible, which is to cover the African continent in less than an hour. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First of all, uh, Happy New Year to all our listeners and to you, and thank you for doing this. 
Oh, it's, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to have you here. And I think it's so important for Americans to understand dynamics on the African continent. In, in the intro, we we heard about the complexity, the diversity, the importance of the continent, the, the, the uh, dynamic nature uh, of the continent. And I just thought maybe I'd begin with a very general question so you could maybe share with our viewers what you think the greatest challenges and, and opportunities are on the continent. Um, thank you again, and and yes, you're you're right, and 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 this is an interesting time to be having this discussion because we're just coming from the U.S. Africa Business uh, uh, Leadership Forum, hosted of course by President Biden, and I think which went very well. So this is a uh, hopefully we can continue and have more of these conversations on the continent. The, the biggest opportunity on the continent is, I think, the innovative capacity of the continent, right? It's the opportunity, the economic opportunity that the continent has. I've always said that we, we, we sort of went from, you know, fighting for political independence to now getting into a stage once we pass the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, fighting for economic independence. And that really then means globalization and how we interact better and find new markets, provide new markets and new opportunities for the rest of the world. The United States has just passed the Inflation Reduction Act. One of the big points of this act is to say that, you know, the US wants to become more independent on sort of chip manufacturing, you know, push the curve on, 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 on sort of seeing how we can do more digitization. A lot of the raw materials are on the continent. There's a big component of the IRA that says we're gonna pay for businesses to explore in the United States, but we already know where this is found on the continent. So I think being able to create those kinds of partnerships, which will reduce cost, increase production, and end up creating jobs on the continent, so less migration by definition, I think are really uh, where the opportunities on the continent lie. I think the big challenge, like for all of us now, is peace. We just need peace. Uh, uh, globally, we need uh, we, the, the, the fear, I think, as we all get into 2023, is that we're going back into sort of a splintered world. I don't want to call it bipolar per se, but you know, are we going to have different sort of centers of tension and gravity as opposed to coming together and seeing whether we can create spaces to, to have peace? We all know that a dollar spent uh, uh, in, in sort of protecting and uh, ensuring and enduring peace is much, much better than the $16 that we need to spend once we have broken the peace. So economically, it makes sense for us to get back to peace across the world. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges uh, that we're facing on the continent. We have, you know, coup d'etats. We continue to have a lot of civil strife in the Libyas of the world that are creating, you know, a Sahel that is unstable. We still have pressures coming from uh, Boko Haram and the rest of the world in Mozambique. And so we also need to be able to address uh, those, those issues, which are global issues. Uh, uh, but but are being played out in an African theater. You know, there, it is this combination of 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 economic drivers and political drivers, right? Of of violence uh, on the continent. And you know what, what's great about having you on this program is that you're you're much more than an academic. You've you've been involved in implementation and running programs to address these challenges and overcome them. Could you tell our viewers a little bit more about what you what you uh, uh, worked on in the World Bank to overcome? some of these challenges to provide people with, with hope and employment and uh, in, in a way that hopefully can reduce the violence and the drivers of conflict. I mean, I, I think you raised nearly $50 billion uh, in investment uh, in, in low-income countries. And, and how are you, are, are you deploying or how, how do you think those investments ought to be deployed? And, and what outcomes would you like to see in, in the areas of economic development, but also, as you mentioned, uh, security and maybe even incentivizing necessary political reforms. No, thank you very much. I think at the World Bank, I was working on what we call the uh, uh, the World's Fund for the Poorest, which is IDA, the International Development Association. So the World Bank has two different pieces of its structure. One is for the more emerging uh, developing countries, the IBRD, International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which was created immediately after the war. And then we have the IDA Fund, which is the fund for the poorest. And there we were able to raise uh, uh, over $50 billion for development of those countries. But even more recently, uh, uh, just uh, to, a year and a half ago with the what we call the special drawing rights, we were able to raise $33.5 billion uh, again for the continent in the middle of COVID. And a lot of those resources went to see how can we uh, uh, ensure that countries have access to the vaccines, that you know, when once there is a crisis, as we all saw, African economies were losing 
anywhere in the order of $6 billion a month because of the shortages that, uh, uh, $60 billion a month because of the shortages that we were witnessing across the world. If you take an economy like Morocco, that is a tourist economy, totally shut down on the COVID, uh, Seychelles, Mauritius, Kenya. And so what we were trying to do was see whether you could also put some resources, what you call social safety nets, which is sort of income transfers to uh, some of the poorest people. Not, nothing, not, not, not very uh, different from some of the packages that were issued in the United States. I think on the, in, 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 on the IDA, what we tried to do is for many of these low and poorer uh, economies on the continent, the first thing that you need to do is build institutions. Building institutions, sometimes people don't realize, is, is not, there's no fancy building that you go and cut, right? There is no, but, but when, when you talk about building institutions, you go from say, a country that has uh, uh, access to, to a growth uh, uh, program, I take Senegal, for example, before, which was growing at 2.3% and today is growing at 6.7% because in the interim, we're able to work with them to improve on their business procedures and bring more uh, businesses onto the, uh, into the country, improve on energy supply. So, you know, once you have a, a doing business framework that is respected, acknowledged and recognized uh, by the international community and the private sector, more business flows. If you take a country like Niger, you go from tax revenues to GDP at 5% and you work with them and you grow it to eight, 9%, it means that they have a lot more fiscal space then to invest in infrastructure, which can then create jobs and bring uh, the foreign direct investment in. And many of these examples that we can Mauritania that went from, you know, you work with them to see how we can review and revise some of their shipping regulations so that businesses uh, that are shipping on the shores of Mauritania, and by the way, that uh, a Western coast of Africa has some of, the, some of the best shrimps in the world, if not the best shrimps in the world, but then we need to protect them in this in this age of biodiversity and conversations on climate is to see, you know, from Guinea-Bissau to Senegal to Mauritania, how you can ensure that that works well, you know, police the, the, the shipping boats, make sure. So these are the kinds of uh, things that those resources go towards. So initially you may not see the direct benefit, but in Mauritania, for example, then creating jobs for over, you know, 20,000 women, because the fishing industry is a, essentially the men go out into the seas, but the women do a lot of the business that is the manufacturing part of that process. So I think that's where we put those resources to today. A big conversation around getting additional resources really for infrastructure. We still have 600 million people on the continent that do not have access to energy. This is just individuals, let alone talking about energy for industrialization, which is, you know, mission critical. And so how can we make sure that we make those things work? One of the things we did was to then see if we can pull our resources. We haven't yet succeeded in creating a Hoover Dam, right? And so, you know, and seeing how one can use that sort of a collective resource across the continent. We hope that with DRC, we can do something like that using the Inga Dam and, and inspiring ourselves from the US example. So Vera, I'm thinking of two eyes, right? Infrastructure and, and, uh, and institutions, which you, you've brought up. And I know that you worked uh, very hard on the UN Economic Commission uh, for Africa's mandate and, and uh, as, as the executive secretary. And of course, you know, I'm sure you encountered a heck of a lot of challenges to to uh, to improving economic growth and and development and and some of those lie in the areas of governance which you can get at through institution building, but what I, what I concluded from time working on corruption and organized crime in Afghanistan is the problem often is one primarily of political will, and many of these political organizations are stakeholders in state weakness because the weakness of state institutions and functions gives them impunity and, and license to steal. And I, I wonder if you might just share with our, our viewers, you know, how did the commission work to overcome those and other uh, obstacles to, to growth and, and development? I mean, I think I, this is a, a, a very good question. I think that the question around corruption and, and we should call it by its name and I'm on record saying it's one of the biggest cancers for, for our continent. Uh, uh, is it, really about how that one brings transparency to the system. And, and I think we are beginning on the continent to see a lot of that happening. You know, if you go to Egypt, for example, now, a lot of the services are only provided digitally. So there's no paper trails, right? You know, it, it, the picture of sort of a, a corrupt system is a system with a guy and a lot of paper around him, right? Because the more paper changes hands and the and paper- stamps, everybody has to put their stamp, stamp on it and get a little, right. 
exactly. little rent see all the all the opportunities for rent seeking behavior and exactly every startup <laughs> creates a rent seeking opportunity so if you can digitize those and and, and the french have a very uh, a good word for it which is sort of taking away the human piece of 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 the engagement right if you if you have that then one of the things that happens is immediately you you get into into a space where you have taken away corruption and we're beginning to see that i think again in rwanda of course in senegal in cote d'ivoire many more countries you know uh, uh, the, the whole sort of tax payment systems is beginning to become more digitized more you know e taxation you know we know where the, the, the sort of opportunities for graft in our systems are. I think that's an important part, but the other part, which is just as critically important, and as you said, it's political will, is in the event that there is eventually, you know, there, there is corruption, the, the penalties for it need to be visible, yeah. they need to be swift, and, and, and because there is a there has to be a deterrence factor. If there is a sense that, you know, there is no sort of retribution for impunity, then you don't really get uh, 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 I think the reaction that you're looking for. But corruption on, on the continent, I think, is two ways, because one of the things that we've been working on, and we worked with this with Ngozi as well, who is now the DG of WTO, and, and Christine Lagarde at the time when she was Minister of Finance of France, is really, it's a two-way street, right? Uh, we have to be able to, 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 to we, we, there's a lot of sort of petty corruption that happens, but there's sort of grand theft, which we've seen with the Tunisians and, you know, many of the countries that sort of where, where we have looting, massive looting with resources moving into other geographies and how we can sort of work with the international community to get back those stolen, stolen assets and, and bring them back to the continent. And, and, you know, DRC, again, is another case in point where there's tons of stolen assets. Nigeria has, uh, we just recently, we got some resources returned from the Abacha days. I think the international system, and I think on the Dodd-Frank in the United States, at some point, there was some work that was being put in place to see whether we can unpack that. The danger sometimes with some of these policies is that in the interest of doing a lot of goodwill we end up sometimes you know doing a few bad things and so for Dodd Frank for example one of the components is around sort of minerals and ensuring that there is no sort of you know blood minerals or blood diamonds in the system but just putting that law what ends up happening is it actually disincentivizes because we do not create the institutions to make the law effective right so there's a kimberley process for example on diamonds where we can sort of work on it and identify and track and with digitization you can do that but we haven't done something similar for the other commodities on the continent so dot frank today fights corruption yes but it fights corruption by just stopping all u.s investments into the sort of resource sector of our continent because nobody wants to touch that because then you get into trouble with Dodd-Frank. So I think we do need to work on how we can make sure that the laws build institutions and not and not, and not just sort of penal uh, cases for the investor and something that we will we could work on. Uh, uh, Anti uh, uh, you know AML um, where we can exchange information on corruption between sort of jurisdictions so that we can uh, uh, ensure that we go after you know the corrupt leaders. We've not su succeeded on the continent in working with the Europeans. Uh, and others now, now actually before a lot of the resources went to Switzerland, right? But now we have, you know, Singapore, Indonesia, you know, there's sort of a, a, play, a diversity of uh, jurisdictions where resources from the continent can go. And we do need, I think, global support and global efforts to see how we can ensure that, you know, those resources stay, stay on the continent. So it's a two-way streak, the sort of corruption, fighting corruption conversation. Mm -hmm. It's what we do on the continent which we can do with digitization of processes. And as you said, stamps and taking away the paper. But then there is a sort of massive crime. You know, I, I move from corruption to crime now where, you know, one, two, 3% of GDP is being sort of looted, but, you know, kept in jurisdictions that are out of the continent and how we can work together. And uh, President Tabu Meki and uh, the Economic Commission for Africa have done a lot of work on what we can do with illicit financial flows, how we can stop them and ensure that those resources are put back to for development in the countries that have them. Yeah, this is a super important point. And for our viewers who are taking notes, I'm adding another I, which is incentivize, incentivize reforms and transparency and accountability. And, and the development, as you're suggesting, of insulated uh, investigative and adjudicative bodies, as well as the, the maybe maybe a, a fourth I, internationalize the effort. Uh, to 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 uh, keep track of these illicit financial flows, but also the flows of of weapons and narcotics and precursor chemicals for narcotics and so forth. All of which, of course, 
strengthens these organized crime networks and strengthens these insurgency and terrorist organizations um, as, as well. And, you know, I, I think now in terms of security, these are, of course, overlapping problems, right? Poor governance leads to the growth and, and strength of these organizations uh, who gain access to all kinds of illicit trafficking, which then enrich them and make them sometimes stronger than the state and its security forces. I know that you also worked directly in security on you know, how to protect civilians and UN personnel, especially in Ethiopia during the Civil War. And I wondered if you might share you know, some, some of your observations on, on that effort in Ethiopia uh, and what was particularly difficult and disappointing, and, as well as what you were able to achieve there. Look, maybe just to go back again to, to that, uh, uh, to, we, we started with some numbers. So 50 billion is what we raised for the uh, IDA, the International Development Association for the Poorest. 33.5 billion is what we raised under the sustainable, uh, uh, the special drawing rights for the continent. It is assumed that we lose about 50 billion a year on illicit financial flows that go to exactly, as you said, propping up this uh, 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 illicit organizations from you know the Boko Harams to terrorism. And so I think when we talk sort of in global conversations around even securing the peace, and as I said, uh, uh, initially, you know, we it's $1 to protect the peace, it's $16 to bring back the peace. So the economics of it are very clear in, in, in every jurisdiction. I think that what, uh, um, the, the, the big message that one learns from all the conflicts on the continent is essentially that, you know, the faster, actually, that we don't want conflicts, you know, it's prevention of the conflict is the first thing, because once the conflict begins, it's a lot more difficult to stop it. This is, and I, I think we're seeing it uh, uh, in all geographies across the world, right? Uh, it's uh, a disaster in the Sahel now. You mentioned Mozambique, where, you know, the, Sahel. where the terrorist problem is growing by orders of magnitude. I mean, I mean, Somalia, as everyone knows, has has been, you know, in, in conflict for for so long, and, and, and I mean, it's just it's just really become a, a crisis in, in across much of the continent, from West Africa all the way to the Horn. It has become a crisis, and I think it's a crisis that, uh, uh, again, we, we go back to the word institutions. One of the things, how you know, what are the challenges? What are some of the lessons that, when one looks back, one thinks about is. You know, I don't know that we have in, 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 in the, the sort of kind of military colleges that we need to build the kinds of, you know, uh, General McMasters of the continent that can both, you know, know how to keep the peace, you know, build the peace, because the peace is not just about keeping it, right? It's about building it continuously. I think we always take uh, for granted uh, uh, the presence of peace, but the, I, actually keeping and protecting peace is a lot more difficult than going into war. It's e actually going into war is probably a much easier option in, in many cases. And so I, I think the continent needs and requires, and it's not just the continent, it is again, a global issue because we've seen when we, we have uh, uh, issues or whether it's on the, on the horn with the terrorist and the sort of, uh, uh, hijackers and or in the western part of, of the continent uh, uh, I come from Cameroon you know what we see is the pirates on the high seas essentially are attacking all of us right it's it's economic assets that are coming from the rest of the world that are being uh, attacked and pirated and so we do need and those those pirates eventually become the ones who then prop up the, the 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 terrorists that we see in Mozambique or the terrorists that we see in Kenya, uh, uh, Nigeria, Cameroon. So essentially, I think that we do need to look at it as a global problem. It's a global security issue. I think one of the problems we have today is we have not looked at it as a global phenomenon. So we've sort of dealt with Afghanistan, and then you know we go and we deal with Iraq, and then you know we deal with Iran, and we deal with Syria. But all of those, you know, the Syrians are showing up in, in the Sahel, right? Absolutely, yes. So, so North, Afri have... North Africa is one of the, the greatest recruiting grounds for exactly. ISIS in, in, in Syria uh, and in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. ISIS is a great example of this, as well as Al-Qaeda, the degree to which they have reached all the way from West Africa into, into Central Asia. They're globalized. And so we must deal with them as global phenomena. And I think that the leadership on the continent has always called for this, has asked you know, we have we have sort of individual national 
consultative conversations around these issues, but they are not individual national issues. They really are global issues. And, and we've seen how spread, uh, again, uh, they, can, they can sort of, how quickly they can spread and how debilitating they can become. I mean, today we have lost the Sahel, uh, uh, essentially, uh, because of the crisis in, in, in Libya. And, and let's not forget that, again, one of the things as a continent we've been talking about is the crisis in Libya, essentially, is an exported crisis because or an imported crisis. It's, it's parties from out of the continent that created this crisis in Libya. And, and, and today we are left with, you know, how does Africa deal with it on its own? And um, it's, it's, I think, for the youth of the continent, it's a little bit... Uh, unfortunate that but but the opportunity again is this youth i think are more willing more ready and more able to have discussions that are global and finding sort of global solutions to those problems that will you know see how we bring peace not just to libya because we need peace in libya but we also then need peace in niger where you have leaders that have a development agenda for their country but can never put it in place because every other morning we're dealing with a security issue in togo or in uh, uh, Burkina Faso today, which was, you know, many years ago, we would have never thought that anything happening in Libya will impact Burkina Faso. But today, Burkina Faso is wrapped into all of the Sahel's problems, and we hope that it doesn't spread even more. And Libya has become a, tr a transit country for refugees coming out of the Sahel, much like Mexico has become a transit country for, for countries that, that, are, that have security issues and and, and economic deprivation in in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere. You know, I, I I wonder. Of course, you do need willing partners locally, and 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 some outside powers do not play a productive role there. And I'm thinking, of course, of the the Russians and how the Wagner Group has moved in into into West Africa. I'm thinking, of course, the, the role that China plays in so in so many countries that in in sort of I think pursuing almost I think you could say a new form of colonialism with. Uh, with predatory loans and debt traps set for countries and kind of just the extractive objectives of the Chinese Communist Party associated with minerals, for, like in the DRC, for example, where, where you see them employing, uh, you know, child labor or almost a, kind of a form of slave labor, you know. And so um, I wondered if you, if you might share with our viewers what your assessment is of, uh, of the role of some of these other outside powers, especially Russia and China, and what more might be done to partner with local leaders to help convince them, hey, the hey, focus on the eyes, right? Institution building, what we're talking about, um, and and pick some different partners to work with. I mean, this is a this is a great question again, and and because of the U.S. Africa Business Leadership Summit, I, I, and I want to go back to this uh, 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 and 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 Dodd Frank and the minerals because a lot of our resources, Africa is resource rich. We have you know, 70% of the minerals that the world needs, but institutions are important. And the reason why, and many people don't know this, the reason why we sell the minerals to China is because the US market is closed because of good intention. The good intention was we, the US does not like child labor. So the US says, we are not going to bring in any minerals that are produced or, or, or mined with child labor. So we put a, we, there is a, Congress passes a bill that says no child labor. And, and what, does the, what is the reaction of US business? Because we cannot determine whether there is one child that was used in the process, we just are going to shut ourselves out of the whole market. And so what has actually happened is a bill that was very well intentioned has ended up saying no minerals from Africa into the United States. Right, so, and, it's, it's, and it's even worse because those minerals are going to factories in China that are using you know, Uyghur slave labor, for example. So, I mean, I, I think- I, 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 I don't think, know about that, but, but, but I think the point then is we have, as the United States and Africa, a way of doing this. Create an institution that oversees, that monitors, that regulates, that supervises, and that puts a, a label that says- And audits these supply chains. Absolutely. Supply chains. I think if any of our listeners are looking for a business idea, right, come, come up with- you know, a model for auditing supply chains and pulling the curtain back on. And if, and if, if any of our listeners and any of the business community is interested, I mean, the value of this market is a $30 billion commodity market, right? So right. this $30 billion commodity market today goes to the East. And, you know, I'll tell you, Vera, hey, don't you think forced labor 
you know, should be an ESG issue. So I, I think, you know, I think, I think this should be a topic of conversation in every boardroom uh, as well. JP Morgan today spends or, you know, the financial sector, the top five, 10 large banks in the United States, they spend anywhere in the order of two to $300 million a year trying to comply with ESG regulation, right? <laughs> Imagine right. if you created one institution, $200 million, $300 million a year to make sure that all the minerals coming out of the continent are certified, are verifiable. We will create even more jobs, interestingly enough, because it will be a service industry to certify every mine that is, you know, producing, whether it's the cobalt, whether it's the lithium, whether, you know, so, so there is a business case there for it. And I think the U.S., uh, is is the leader again i go back to the the inflation reduction act and the 65 billion dollars that is in that act to go and source minerals for 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 the united states sort of digitization and uh, uh, independence you know i think and chip industry independence i think if we worked with and, and batteries and magnets and, and everything that, and, and yeah, right, yeah. zambia mozambique botswana we can all do these batteries for you but come to us invest with us we can make sure that we are not using child labor. We can use the, the, you know, in DRC, they've started working with the Economic Commission for Africa. They've started an institute to educate a new set of engineers and you. So we'll put those kids back to school because we're gonna need them. We're gonna need their brains back in the battery factories. Today, we don't have enough of the engineers uh, that we need to create this battery. So I think there is a, a win-win solution here. My sense is that the, the conversation that goes by, Africa needs to stop selling its minerals to other geographies. As long as we have a constraint that says you can't send it to us, we need to sell right. it. Okay, Vera, I'm thinking of another I, information, right? Providing information about these supply chains, pulling the curtain back on them. Uh, and and then also informing, I think, the, the African uh, public as, as well, especially about, you know, China's practices, right? The, the, new, the new vanguard of the Red Army, the Chinese Communist Party is, is a Chinese national bank official with a duffel bag full of cash, you know, who, who uh, you know, who, who pays off officials uh, in debts, that country for multiple generations. And then what you get is then you get a Chinese company, you know, with Chinese workers who get paid in, in a way and their money goes back to China and it doesn't have that lasting benefit uh, for the continent. So I, I'm hoping that this new this new uh, initiative in the U.S. is is uh, is going to be helpful, but also you have a lot of experience in this in, in the financial aspect of of de sustainable economic development and, and growth. And and I'm thinking about your work with the liquidity and sustainability facility. And could you share with, with our viewers how we need to revise and adapt the global financial architecture uh, to to foster uh, growth and and development in Africa and of course with benefits uh, across the world. Now, uh, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this because I actually think that the one of the biggest missing institutions on the continent today are the financial institutions. I tend to say that the Bretton Woods institutions were created after the war 70 odd years ago, uh, essentially when we were all low income countries. And, and today, 75% of the African continent is middle income or developed emerging market economies. And the infrastructure for that is like roads, right? We had farm to market roads, and now we need interstate highways. And we don't have the interstate highways to go with the stage of development we have arrived at in the financial space. And so what are we trying to do with the liquidity and sustainability facility? Essentially, today, when Africans go to the markets to raise resources for their development, and this is important, critical, and needed because the sort of development institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, the EIB, and, and the bilaterals do not have enough resources for the continent to develop. So we need more. Where can we find those resources in the markets? There's trillions and trillions of dollars in the market uh, that everybody uh, accesses, developed as well as the developing world. However, the, one of the reasons why we can access those, those resources is because there is a market uh, infrastructure there that allows us to use those resources while the owners of those resources do other things with them. And so there's a whole collateral management system around you know, access to markets in the financial sector what, that Africa does not have. So when you issue an African bond or if you go to the markets to get resources, People don't want to buy your paper or they buy your paper, but they, they in some sense charge you 
for the fact of keeping your paper because they cannot resell your paper. They cannot convert it into liquidity very quickly. So essentially, I don't want to hold paper from Africa that I cannot convert into liquidity because when I need liquidity, liquidity very quickly, then you know I can you know liquefy a U.S. Treasury bill. I can liquefy a, a, a U.K. guild but I can liquefy a bond from a, a random country on the continent. So then I charge you for that, for that cost of sort of holding illiquid cash. What the liquidity and sustainability facility is doing is to say, we're gonna take away that component. We're gonna create a secondary market so that you can also make liquid Africa's bond issuances as quickly as you want. That immediately creates more resources in the system. It gives more equity, more liquidity to the system. And I give an example because sometimes it seems very far away. If you look at just a few months ago in the UK, when we had the crisis and interest rates were going up and the, you know, the, the UK government could not service its, its sort of needs to make its uh, uh, honor its obligations, what did the Bank of England do? The Bank of England came in and provided liquidity to the UK government at accessible rates. It also provided liquidity. A lot of the businesses were able to mortgage or collateralize some of their assets to get liquidity quickly to pay for some of their bills that were coming due for which they couldn't have access because the markets had essentially shot out on the UK. That essentially is what we're trying to do for Africa. And there is a difference between needing liquidity and going bankrupt or becoming insolvent. The problem on the continent today is the minute a country has a liquidity crunch, we say, oh, they have a debt crisis. So we move them from just having a temporary liquidity crunch to a debt crisis, which is a lot more difficult. The markets react a lot uh, uh, more stringently and penalize you a lot more when you have a debt crisis. If you have a liquidity crisis, which we could solve, we could solve it much faster and you could continue to grow. So I think we are also giving the space for the continent not to have the sort of fits and starts where every time there is a liquidity crunch, it's converted into a debt crisis and then we have to sort of fall back to the bottom and start up again. And putting Africa on par with the rest of the developing world that has access to the kinds of resources it needs. We have just seen five external crises. We've just talked about the crisis and on sort of instability piece, which is essentially is external to us as a global crisis. We have COVID, we have climate, we have inflation in the United States that is also uh, hitting. And so, you know, what as we, and then of course, uh, uh, a lot of the political crises on the continent. When, once you have all of that, and then we have the shock of China's growth. We talk about China on one side, but China essentially was one of the countries pulling global growth. When China grows from 10% growth to 2.7% growth, it means that it's global demand that contracts enormously. And the rest of the world sort of needs to, today we're worried about sort of a huge reopening of China and whether that will then continue to you know, fuel inflation or will it, will it contain inflation, but it has done the reverse as well. So I think we do need to find the kinds of financial instruments that will allow Africa to build an economic base that is more resilient to this kinds of you know, persistent shocks. And one thing we know for sure is we're gonna continue having a lot more shocks in our system. Well, Vera, I think your, your perspective is particularly valuable on, on all of these problems because you've worked across all of these problem sets and you understand how they're interconnected. And I think one of the deficiencies that we have in, in talks about climate and the effort to reduce carbon emissions is those conversations often happen in a way that is disconnected from the need for continued economic growth. Uh, and development, and it's disconnected from energy security issues, which are really important on the continent. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about this artificial concentration of so much of the world's manufacturing on the southeastern coast of China. <laughs> well, of course, one of the ways that that's happened is really no or very low uh, ecological standards and standards associated with carbon emissions, right? I mean, I think the Chinese, uh, we're, we're building up to 80 coal-fired plants a year, financing 80 coal-fired plants a year, many of them in Africa. And you've worked very hard on, on climate issues. Could you share with our viewers what you think is a viable path ahead uh, in terms of reduction of carbon emissions, but also in a way that, 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 uh, that preserves energy security and allows for the economic growth and development that's necessary to lift people out of, out of poverty, give them a future generations a, a, a better life to live. Oftentimes, Vera, I think it's kind of a false dilemma. I mean, if we think about these interconnected problems, we can maybe get something done. So I, I know that you know you co-authored a report on finance for global action. You're part of, 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 of the roundtable of UN climate champions. You've been involved with this for a long time. 
what what is your perspective? What can we do to to have a more rational and effective approach to these interconnected problems? Now, um, thank you. I think that the, the, the climate crisis is the crisis of our time. It is the crisis of our generation today. And I was honored to work with uh, Professor Stern and Nick Stern on this report on uh, finance for climate action. And, and essentially, we, we say in the report that, you know, addressing the climate challenge is not a nice thing to do or, you know, something that we do uh, once we're done doing everything. It is the thing to do. We, it, it, is, it is crucial. The precipice is, is upon us and we must uh, address it. At the same time, part of addressing it is looking at where we are today. We know that 20 countries in the world, uh, of which, you know, the top five, the United States, China, uh, uh, Germany, uh, 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 India are some of the largest polluters uh, 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 in the world. And, and the question then becomes, how can we move from sort of the, that set of large polluters into a, a, a net zero environment between now and 2050? What are the trajectories? What are the paths? A big question is, you know, if you look at Norway, Norway today, because of the crisis in Russia and Ukraine, is producing more gas than it has ever done in all of its history, right? And it has allowed countries like Germany to go from almost 0%, uh, from 23% uh, procurement of gas from Russia to zero, 0 today. Essentially, they have substituted all the, the, the gas that they were getting from Russia with Norway. And this is fantastic with Norway and the Netherlands, by the way. Norway has even gone to reopening some coal plants. So the conversation that we have on the continent is if we can afford for a Norway that has all the sophistication, all the technology to quote unquote leapfrog to clean technology, to still go backwards and retrocede into coal, then it is almost impossible not to have the conversation that says Africa that has an abundant supply of natural gas should not use its natural gas. Again, the global emissions from Africa are 4% of all the emissions of the world, right? And even if we were able to, to, even if we were able to triple our gas production today, we will be able to, we will only increase that sort of global emissions number from four to five. So the dent that we are making is not big. However, because we are not using gas, which is slightly cleaner, we're using diesel. So half of the, the car fleet in Nigeria is diesel, right? Half of the car fleet in DRC or even 60%, Every house in Nigeria is powered by a diesel engine. If we could replace all of that, the net benefit, again, is much, much bigger. So I think the conversation here, and you know, prior to the war in Ukraine, there was a conversation about no use of gas. Now we talk about energy security. The United States is exporting gas to, to Europe, right? right? Because the United States is assuring. And I think what we can do is ensure by working with Africa, which has actually an abundant supply of gas, probably much cheaper to procure to see how we can fast track that transition. Right. And then once you've done that, can we then do a sort of gas to hydrogen? Uh, uh, Absolutely. Building gas to hydrogen cycles and make sure that we then actually transform. So there are two parts. The first part is the developing world needs to begin to look at sort of pulling itself out of fossil fuels. The, the, the developed world, sorry. The developed world needs to stop. The developing world needs to look at what is that transition? So for Africa, we have a transition which needs gas. And so we can argue that that transition is important and you know, give us, and the IEA anyway says that even if all of us were to stop using gas today, we don't have enough renewables. This is where the battery conversation comes in. Right. Be able to power the industries that we need. So there is still a transition period. Within Absolutely. that transition period, we should make sure we do not create stranded assets. This is the important thing. No investment that goes into the energy sector today should be an investment that will be stranded in 15 years. Mm -hmm. And hence the reason to start doing combined cycles of energy production. Yeah, Vera, I mean, you're making so many important points here. I think global energy demand is gonna go up by 50% between now and 2050. Renewables will only cover 28% of that. The largest reduction in man-made carbon emissions ever was really the conversion from coal to gas in the United States based on a free market dynamic of available you know, cheap gas. And by the way, U.S. gas is a heck of a lot cleaner than, for example, Russian gas. So it's really standards as well for the carbon that's generated in the extraction and transit process. And then your idea, I think, is really important of gas infrastructure that can be converted to hydrogen 
and then be combined maybe with these EM squared or next generation nuclear reactors, which I think we need to rename to clean fusion because people get freaked out when you hear nuclear. But you know, that's I mean, but you need this whole you need this whole range you know, and, and renewables, you need everything. And you know, and we could do it, but we have these irrational impulses like, okay, all electric cars. Well, you know, hey, if those electric cars are recharged. But with electricity generating a coal-fired plant, that's even worse, you know? Or, hey, get more solar panels from China. Well, those, those solar panels are manufactured <laughs> in the dirtiest way possible. So I, I, I really think, again, it gets this point of information, you know, and, and supply chain audits and, and just being rational human beings you know, when we come up with these, uh, with I mean, these solutions. Information is, is, as you said it well, information is really the key. When you look at the coast of, of West Africa, you know, Senegal, Mauritania, or you go to Mozambique, I think today some, one of the abominations of the continent of Africa is that we see gas, you know, leaving Mozambique, leaving Algeria, leaving, you know, and going to Europe. But we're having the same conversation that says that Africa cannot produce its own gas in Nigeria, right? What you need to do is go to Nigeria and say, you guys have diesel. Let's convert every diesel engine into a gas engine with the, 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 the sort of you know, end game of eventually having a fusion <laughs> a process through hydrogen or nuclear, because we know that nuclear is going to be the end game at some point. I think that if we could do that, or hydro, because we have a lot of hydro on the continent as well, can we, again, and look at how we use some of our hydro uh, uh, assets. But it is this, um, I think we should just call it by its name. It's the hypocrisy of the conversation, right? Where, where, where there is a lecture about, you know, don't use gas. And then one day we say, oh no, this is not about, you know, uh, uh, just growth and development. It's about energy security. In Africa, energy security is growth and development. And growth and development is about energy security. So, so our kids cannot go to school or the, the day or the, the school day ends on the continent for an average kid at five o'clock when the sun goes down. We need, we cannot innovate with that kind of access to electricity. So we needed a lot more. So for us, it's a, it's it's our it's a it's a it's a livelihood sustenance security problem to have the right kind of energy. But as you said, the United States has one of the cleanest gas and LNG standards. Getting, you know, agreements between the United States. So, so today the United States has guaranteed German energy security. Fantastic. Why doesn't the United States work with Mauritania, Senegal, Mozambique to produce sure. LNG that is needed to send to Germany. Right, right. We can do this. I, yeah. I think these are, these are the kinds of processes. So, so rather than saying we'll go and explore for gas in some other uh, pipeline that is coming out and create all kinds of political conversations in the United States, we have gas in Mozambique. Bring it right. right. to Mozambique and let's send it to Germany. Everybody will be the better off. And, and the EU is, is one of the major customers now for, for oil Im imports. Exactly. Uh, could could impose you know some sort of attacks on gas that is less clean, for example. I mean, in, I think you know this point of the other I we've talked about is incentives, right? Incentivizing, you know, the the kind of development of, of clean extraction and transit of of natural gas as a as a bridge away from coal, you know, because as you mentioned, I mean, you know, Germany shut down their nuclear reactors and then they fired up their coal fire plants again. You know, at the same dynamic for understandable reasons after the Fukushima disaster. Uh, happen in Japan. It's like we're doing the opposite. Companies are asking South Africa to, I mean, we have the jet peas and South Africa is working to move out of coal, but now coal has become uh, 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 it, the rate of return on coal investments in South Africa is probably, you know, it's, it's becoming more lucrative, just as in Norway, by the way. And so there is a conversation about should we open up some coal plants? And, and But I think that if we could use US technology and say we wanted to make sure that Europe got the energy security it needed, but with the best technology and with affordable, accessible gas, which is sitting on our continent in any one of those Tanzania, I mentioned Mozambique, but you can talk about Tanzania, you can talk about Kenya, of course, on the other side, you know, Cameroon, Senegal, Mauritania, there is gas all over that, uh, the West African coast. So I think the question again is, what is the incentive? What is the incentive structure that allows U.S. Uh, LNG firms to come and work in Africa, where is the financial, where are the financial resources? I must say today that, you know, the U.S. infrastructure with DFC and MCC and uh, U.S. Exim, there is an infrastructure there that could actually accompany these firms. Uh, and this is developed for our listeners, the Development Finance Corporation, Export-Import Bank, combined with another organization to, to be able just to underwrite risk for viable 
uh, investment opportunities uh, abroad. And I think it's a very important initiative, still a little bit underutilized. We need to get more American companies excited uh, about the business opportunities in, in Africa. And that's what we're trying to do with the US Africa Business Leadership Food Initiative. We call it the Food Initiative, but it's actually looking at energy, it's looking at digitization, it's looking at infrastructure improvements, storage, because a lot of sort of food security really depends on many things that are not on the farm, right? And so of course there's going to be a lot of work on improving the seeds and the quality, but the whole sort of transportation and financing process is going to be just as important. So we hope that we can work with sort of, so my, you would have noticed by now from the questions you're asking and from my answers, my approach to a lot of this is, yes, we can complain about everything that we don't like, but we can find solutions that make it, as you said, market-based competitive. If, our, if the United States can show us market-based competitive methods of producing LNG, of exporting our commodities, of buying our gas, we wouldn't need to look at all the geographies. The exports of Africa to the United States are dropping at an amazing rate. And so if we could, you know, you have been overtaken by, you know, Europe was always the largest, ex our largest export and import destination, but China has risen, India has risen, Africa is almost larger than you guys, right? right? So I think the question is how can America with all of its competitive strength come back and take the, the space? One of the, I, I have done a paper that shows that when Africa trades with the United States, we add more value, we create more innovation, we create more jobs over the long term. So it's a no brainer for a business on the, on the continent to do business with the United States, but we need to create the incentives and we need to create the institutions that make that happen. Yeah. Vera, absolutely. And, you know, the Hoover Institution is, is the home of Milton Friedman. So this is music to the Hoover Institution's ears about free market, free market solutions, you know. Uh, and so I wonder if we might just then talk about aid uh, and, and what makes aid effective. And, and I think it's, it's clear from our conversation, you believe that the best aid is, 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 a, is a viable sort of economic and financial relationship that that unleashes the free market and creates opportunities, right? And in countries that have the institutions to ensure that, that you know, that, that uh, resources aren't diverted, that there can be an investment in infrastructure and institutions. And But what, what do you think have been the most successful frameworks for international assistance that you've seen? And so I'm thinking of the some recent criticisms, you know, of, of aid, uh, Dambisa Moyo's book, Dead Aid, highlights that donors and recipients form these dependent relationships, right? That benefit the donor more than they do sometimes uh, the, the, the recipient and disenfranchise maybe even the recipient or uh, or Mark Moyer's observation uh, in, in a book called Aid for Elites where he says that aid efforts disappoint because of, as you already mentioned, underinvestment in human capital and underinvestment in institutions. So in your experience, could you maybe take a critical view of aid and then how aid should shift to take maybe advantage of the free market and to be more effective? I mean, I think there are two, two, two ways of looking at it. One of them, of course, Jeffrey Sachs and the others who talk about, you know, putting a lot of aid into sort of the social sectors, education, health, and, you know, essentially grant, uh, grant resources, not, not, because uh, when, when we talk about aid, I think people get confused. So just for, 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 for the purposes of our listeners, you know, there is in, in the aid uh, infrastructure, there is grant aid, which is essentially non-returnable uh, uh, resources that are given to countries. And then there is aid, which is loans, which essentially is, but, but very concessional, cheap, more, uh, lower than market price cost loans that are given depending on your uh, development needs and your stages of development. So I think if we take the first one, which is the grants, uh, uh, sort of component, which is what you get with IDA, the, the sort of International Development Association part. This is sort of 40-year loans at, you know, 10-year grace. Uh, essentially, you know, uh, there's nothing to pay back. I think Jeff Sachs makes the case for that. Maybe what we need to do is throw it at education, throw it at health, throw it at some of these public goods resources that we need. And then there is a, a, a conversation that happens, and I think at the Hoover Institution, you're doing a lot of work already on this, around infrastructure. Infrastructure we know is, 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 is an investment that over a 10 to 15 year period can begin to make a rate of return that the markets accept. As, as a matter of fact, today, if you invest in energy on the continent, you're making 18%. We have sort of the best investment opportunities on the continent if people will just sort of, you know, uh, uh, take a, a second look at it. Solar energy investments on our continent are probably some of the highest in the world today uh, in rates of return terms 
in the financial sector the same. I think what we need to do is to say, what is the, the sort of, what are those grant resources or concessional resources? And, and which one do we apply to what segment of the population and the economy? If you have sort of equity type resources, maybe put them in infrastructure because there is a rate of return, which is pretty quick in digitization in the financial sector. I think one of the problems we've had with aid today is that aid sometimes crowds up the private sector. And so in trying to do good, we're essentially holding back development because we crowd out you know, a private sector in, in and of itself. So if you, if you have a banking financial sector that is giving out sort of loans at market rates to the, to the agriculture sector, maybe at, let's say at 3%, and you bring in an aid program, you know, that says, oh, you know, we want to bring some aid, we're going to give out loans at 1%. The bank closes down, you give out loans at 1% for one and a half years, clearly you are not making any returns because the bank had established that the market uh, break point was 3%. You give it at 1% for, you know, however the terms of the grant are, after two, three years, you close down, but the bank is gone. And so essentially what you have done is you've killed, you've, you've sort of taken away a market for a much longer period because you were trying to sort of do good. I think one of the things with the donor communities, we try to get this very quick results very quickly uh, at the detriment sometimes of building long-term sustainable institutions. And so Again, 70 years later, a lot of the development on the continent is happening in the private sector, is happening with government-owned finances. And so aid must be an addition to that and not sort of, right now we, we in many of our economies, we kind of still have the tail wagging the dog, right? We, we sort of have the aid resources determining policy. And that cannot be the case in an economy. If you look at the Nigerian economy, you know, aid is, is a very, very small fragment of that. And so it's very difficult to have aid being is useful. So then you have a small community that kind of hijacks the aid and does, you know, not necessarily market creating, market enhancing, or market developing activities. Then you get the criticism around the aid. But when aid works and works well, then, you know, we've seen it do very, very good things in many countries, you know, Nigeria, Niger, uh, particularly the conflict affected countries, Guinea-Bissau, you know, where you've really seen aid do transformational things. In the developed countries, of course, we've worked, you know, with some of the more emerge, emerging market economies in the Seychelles of the world and Mauritius to sort of support their financial sectors, you know, strengthen uh, the, the infrastructure for regulation because, you know, as you develop, the sort of needs that you, you, you have are, are slightly different. You, you need basic infrastructure, but as you go up, then it's sort of how you immerse your economy into the rest of the world and that is mostly regulation. So we've done a lot of that with aid and it's very effective if it's done well and if it's you know done with the countries as opposed to you know done as you know Washington consensus that is being imposed on on those countries but now in most of the African countries if not all you know the the the, the leadership when well chosen is uh, educated in the same schools. So it's very easy to have those conversations about the direction of development. Vera, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the last two questions I have, because we're almost we're out of time already, but there's so much to talk about, is, is a, is a follow-on to that in terms of uh, medical assistance. And I'm thinking, of course, of PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief that was initiated under George W. Bush. That was a successful initiative. You've been involved in trying to get COVID vaccines and, and vaccine manufacturing uh, into Africa, and I'm sure you've encountered obstacles there. But I wondered if if you might share your thoughts on 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 uh, medical uh, assistance and 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 medical uh, health security issues on the continent, uh, and maybe with PEPFAR as an example. And then maybe also you know talk a little bit about about education. Right by 2030, young Africans are expected to constitute 42 percent of of global youth. Uh, but but a, but a you know a low percentage of of those young people are are, are in school. I think it's uh, you know for example half of the children in sub-Saharan Africa between the ages of six and eleven, I think uh, uh, you know uh, or and half of the children between the ages of twelve and 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 fourteen uh, are not in school. So um, could you maybe I, I know it's impossible to cover this, but could you talk about health security uh, and and also uh, education and what the trends are and what might more might be done uh, to improve health security and education. First of all, let me just start, because I think I know it's the 20th anniversary, is it the 20th or 25th anniversary of PEPFAR? So I just want to say, I mean, it has been probably 
one of the most successful signature projects uh, uh, of the United States on uh, uh, the African continent. And part of the success of PEPFAR has been that it has worked with local institutions, it has strengthened uh, local institutions, both from service provision to research and technology. And now the new head of PEPFAR, of course, uh, uh, Dr. John Kengasong is looking to see how uh, one can open up that a little bit more. I think these are the kinds of initiatives we must build on, understand why they work, why they work so well. Today, PEPFAR is a $130 billion initiative. It wasn't $130 billion when it was launched, but it's staying power and it has transformed lives, particularly in, in uh, Southeast Africa, where, you know, when uh, we had the first AIDS epidemic, you know, there was really just a disaster that was going on in those parts of the world. However, uh, a PEPFAR is one project. At the end, when COVID hit and some of the work that we did at the Economic Commission for Africa, we showed that Africa was still importing over 95% of its pharmaceutical needs from outside the continent. We were just not there in terms of producing, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of market making. And I think one of the things that COVID did was bring that to light, the kinds of dependence, just like in agriculture and wheat with Russia and Ukraine, the kinds of dependence that we had. And I think part of it is linked to education. You know, if we don't have the right research, we can, if we're not educating our kids enough to go into the right sort of, you know, segments of research for education and for production of pharmaceutical components, but also creating markets with regulation and incentives, then we will never be able to, I think, get the kind of health security and education security that we need. So I think one of the things that we're working on now with the United States, we hope another kind of presidential initiative comes out of it is this food security initiative, where we can do some research on what are the, the right kinds of commodities that we need. How can we produce more on the continent for uh, uh, the rest of the world so we don't have wheat independence in one geography of the world, maybe we can spread it out and uh, Africa has the ability to be one of those uh, geographic locations where we do that. But again, it's education, right? It's what kind of wheat, what kind of wheat resilient wheat, wheat in this climate uh, sort of rapidly changing climate environment that we are in today. And so the whole sort of education conversation is education for what? And, and what are we gonna use the youth for? It's not about sort of, you know, for a very long time, we, we put kids to school, 90% of our kids in school, but maybe only 40% of our kids actually learning something that is useful for the future. And I think that's the conversation we need to have around education is education for what kind of agriculture, education for what kind of technology, education for what kind of health security into the future, education. We need education for education for what kind of energy production. We don't have, we have the hydrogen, but we don't have the engineers to produce it. So we need to come to you to help us uh, see how we can convert uh, our raw material into something that we can actually put to market as a commodity. So I think that that kind of educational uh, conversation must come up with, you know, what, what, what makes Africa competitive and how does Africa go from where it is today with commodities and an asset that is its youth, but a youth that is uneducated is a liability. An educated youth is the biggest asset we can have. Sure. Well, thanks to you. I think we did it. I mean, we, we covered a lot of ground and, yeah. and, uh, and it, we, uh, our team was talking about like, how are we going to cover Africa in an hour? And I said, well, I mean, maybe we just invite the right guest, which we, we, we did. I can't, I can't, thank right you. Questions. <laughs> <laughs> I can't thank you enough. Any, any final words for our viewers? No, I, I mean, as we go into 2023, I think that, again, the world is in, in crisis and we're all trying to see how we navigate this crisis. There's a lot of conversation around, you know, friendshoring, onshoring, breaking up supply chains. I think it's right to bring supply chains closer to the economies, but I think that the fastest way that the world grows is through trade through a more global, more transparent uh, uh, exchange mechanisms. And so I think creating the kinds of infrastructure, that's what you know, WTO is doing. That's what we're trying to do at the Economic Commission for Africa. Uh, that's what you know, the AFCFTA is trying to do. But we need a take on Africa that is a new take. There is a new generation of African leaders today that is able to provide the gas resources that are needed in Europe, that is able to provide the wheat that is needed in the world, that is able to provide the chip uh, uh, production that is needed in the United States. But the only way that we do that is that we do it together. 
and that we work together to create the, the, the incentive structure that works for both. And I think we can do that. So my sense is give it, give Africa another look. We have the peace problem and we do need to solve it. So I think we also need to continue working on that end. And I, I still believe that we need military colleges uh, sponsored by the United States that will help us get, you know, leaders that are a little bit more, uh, 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 that understand the cost of war and the benefits of peace so that we can build that faster. Dr. Vera Songwe, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds or what we hope will not be actual battlegrounds, <laughs> but learning more about the continent of Africa. We have uh, good and battlegrounds, economic battlegrounds. Economic battlegrounds, economic. right. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> economic battlegrounds, yes. <laughs> and and you've, you've helped us learn what more we can, we can all do to build a better future for generations to come. Thank you so much for being with us. Amazing show. And thank you for giving Africa the opportunity to, shoot, to, to sort of come alive and, and with the show as well. So thanks for everything you have done. Uh, it's an honor to, to have this engagement with you. And I think... Uh, Many of us think the same, so I speak for many of us. Thank you so Vera, much. Vera, thanks. Honor's mine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.